Today we are going to finish up the Old Testament, if you can believe it. Now, of course, this has been a very brief overview. I mean, you could spend the rest of your life probably in one book, but uh, you could almost spend your life in a chapter if you really needed to. Come on, it's, it's, it's really deep. So this is a brief overview, just hopefully to, to give you some big points to point out along the way for people you're in conversation with, or maybe even to help you kind of figure out, you know, the timeline of things happening, and boom, 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 this goes on, this goes on, this goes on. The big message, or the big theme for this week, is to do this. Keep God yes, first. It was kind of almost self-explanatory there, wasn't it? Keep, keep God first. First, which is a good message overall for, for anybody, anytime, right? Keep God first. That's something we should always do, always strive to do in everything we do, period, is to keep God first. So where we left off last week, who was the king we left off with last week? Solomon. Solomon. And in three generations after Solomon, or three generations once they have a king, three kings... The people get a taste for what Samuel was saying and what God was saying through Samuel. Hey, you don't want a king. And they, they've probably already gotten a little bit of a taste with the kings that they have because they haven't been perfect either. They've been a man trying to run this, this whole nation and this economy. A man's going to make mistakes. Anytime you give man power, he's going to make mistakes. So they've gotten a little taste probably, but now they're going to get a bigger taste of this. God doesn't want you to have this king because... Why? He doesn't have your priorities first. He's going to take your land. He's going to send you to war. He's going to do all these things that you don't want to do. And God, is, from the very beginning, has been saying what? Do you guys remember what we started off with, the, the uh, theme of where we started? Trust me. And hasn't God been saying that over and over again? Trust me. Trust me that, that what I say is right. Trust me that this tree is not for you. Don't eat it. Trust me. But they don't. Trust me that you don't want a king, but they don't. We do. We, we want one. We want one real bad. We want a king. We want a king. And in three generations, they pretty much get what they're asking for. And uh, what happens here, this first one here, is this. Because we have reached the point where now the kingdom is divided, right? We've got north. We've got south. And that, that's a common phrase among his, north and south, right? <laughs> and it is divided. North and south divided. First, not first Kings, excuse me. Well, yeah, First Kings 12. First Kings 12. You've got Jeroboam and you've got Rehoboam in this. Rehoboam is going to be the king. And Jeroboam comes before him and he says, hey, go easy on us. Go easy on the people. Because at the end of Solomon's reign, he had kind of become pretty much an overbearing king. Taxing the people heavily, overspending on government projects. Things, things are getting out of control. And he comes and he says to Rehoboam, please lighten the load of the people. Lighten the load and we will serve you. So right off the bat, you see uh, two people here that are, seem like, okay, 
They might get it together. They might get it together. But what does Rehoboam do? He goes and he asks the older counselors, his father's counselors, and he goes and he asks his younger counselors, the ones more of his contemporaries. And what what does the old guard say? The old guard says, lighten the load of the people. Solomon was too harsh. Lighten the load of the people. So he goes to the younger counselors, and what do they say? Make it heavier. <laughs> here's, here's a good case of asking the older generation. The older generation knows a lot of times what's good. The older generation has been around. They've seen things. They know. They've got some wisdom. These men had some wisdom, but Rehoboam chose to listen to the younger of the two that told him, you know, if, if your father's thigh is this big, then your finger is this big, and your finger is bigger than your father's thigh. And that's what he basically says to the people. My father whipped you with whips, but I'm going to whip you with scorpions. I am going to be just as much and more than my father ever was to you. And that causes the people to say, oh boy, this is not good. And so that's when the split happens. And Jeroboam, who was not king yet, is now going to be king of the north. Rehoboam is going to be king of the south. Jeroboam, Israel. Rehoboam, Judah. Going to be kings here. Going to, going to split the kingdom. Chapter 12, 16 through 20, Jeroboam is made king of Israel there. And they say, no, we don't have any portion in the house of David. That's the south kingdom, Judah. A lot of times, I don't know if, if, if for, for you and me, for, for between you and me, I told my wife yesterday, as I was going through this lesson, I keep going over it and over it. But there's so many kings, there's so many names, there's so many things happening that sometimes you start to lose you know, focus of what, what, what is going on here. What is happening through all of this stuff? There is so much drama, so much action. You can make tons of good movies and miniseries about these things because there's so much going on, so many people. Sometimes they have the same name <laughs> or a similar name. And you think, well, didn't I read about him before? Didn't I read about him? Man, to keep up with all of this stuff. It's good for us, though, because it's a lesson in keeping God first. And it's also a lesson in trusting God. God said from the beginning, trust me. And what are these men doing here? They're not trusting God. They're trusting in what they can do, what I want, what I can do. And later in that chapter, you get to Jeroboam, and that's where he sets up these two golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Because, ironically, it's interesting. As you get to the end of that chapter, this guy who came to Rehoboam and said, hey, lighten the load of the people and we'll serve you. At the end of the chapter, he's, he's devising the scheme to keep the people happy with his reign so they don't go to Rehoboam. So it's, again, it's, it's man trying to hold on to what man can hold on to. If I've got some power, I want to keep that power. And in fact, like we talked about this morning in class, if I've got power, I might want a little more. Why not get some more power? Why not, why not take over some more stuff? Why not influence or, or extend my reign to more people and more things? So go ahead and erase that time. So the first one is north and south. You've got a kingdom that is divided. Three generations have gone by. And now Rehoboam, Jeroboam are splitting the kingdom north and south. If you want to title that one, I titled it in my book, A Tale of Two Kings. Because that's really kind of how it boils down there. This tale of two kings. From here, we go to something that you are all very familiar with. What do you think this is? Jonah. Not a faithful representation, I'm sure, of the great fish. But anyway, it'll communicate the idea. 
Jonah. <laughs> the northern kingdom by this time has been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, who was a huge world power. Northern captivity or northern kingdom has been dragged off. They've seen their family dragged off. They've seen their family tortured. Whatever goes along with this Assyrian, because the Assyrians were not nice people. And we're not nice to their, to their captives. They've dragged them off. They've, they, they've taken them. And God is going to reach out at this point to his people. But he's also going to reach out to people that are not his. And that's basically what Jonah is. Do you remember when we went through Jonah and his confliction? His, 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 I, I, I really don't want to go talk to these people. Because they're the ones that have taken us into captivity. They're the mean people. They're the bad people. Why would you want to save them? I don't like them. And what it boils down to is, is Jer- Jonah has a problem with these people, the Ninevites, the, the Assyrians. They, I don't like them, and I don't want them to be saved. In fact, that's, at the end of the book, what does God tell him, or what does he tell God? Excuse me. There you go, God. You did exactly what I knew you were going to do, and you saved them. They're, they're going to they're be okay for, well, for a while. They have turned, and Jonah did not want that to happen. Jonah went and preached a good lesson. Walked around the city preaching that good lesson, and boom, they do it. But at the end of the book, what is he? He's still mad. He still doesn't like the people, and he still doesn't think God should save them. And there's a lot of good lessons that we pulled from Jonah, I think, when we went through Jonah. But I want to give you a couple more here. I think one of the ones that we did was you can't run from God, right? You cannot run from him. No matter where you go, God is there. You can't run from him. He's asking Jonah to trust him too, isn't he? Again, this message of trust is coming through. Jonah, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know who these people are. I know what I'm doing. Go anyway. Number two, he loves people even when we think he shouldn't. He loves people I don't think he should love because they don't deserve it, because they're not good people, because I'm, I'm a racist, let's say, like Jonah. I don't like those people. I don't think you should love them, God. But God says, you know what? I do love them because they're made in my image. I love them. Number three, God's salvation is for everybody. God's salvation is for everybody. It's for anyone who wants to come to God. What's interesting here is God uses the kingdom to discipline his people. The Assyrian people are are disciplining God's people. But then God turns right around and he says, Okay, Assyrian people, people of Nineveh, how would you like to be redeemed? How would you like some salvation here. He uses them and then he says, okay, I'm going to offer you a chance to return, um, to come to me. Go ahead and erase that time. So we go from the north and the south splitting. The northern kingdom being dragged off by Assyria and being placed into captivity. And now Jonah, a prophet, sent to Nineveh, sent to the Assyrian place and, and told to preach this message of you've got a chance to repent, which they do. And now, if the north is dragged away in captivity, what about the south? What, what's going on with the southern kingdom? Well, the southern kingdom has a sort of an up and down thing going on. Even the northern kingdom has an up and down thing going on. But the southern kingdom has an up and down thing. Good kings, bad kings, you know, kings that, that, that drew people back to God, and then kings that drew people towards the idols and drew them away from God. And in, in this... Long line of kings. Again, you've got tons of kings. You've got this roller coaster going on. And on the, the top of this roller coaster, you've got very badly drawn cars on this roller coaster. 
You've got two J's. Two J's writing this. Two J's. Josiah and Jehoshaphat. Two J's. These guys began a national program again to draw people back to God. They declared feasts to, to get the Sabbaths back in order. They, they did all sorts of things to try to get people back to God. Joseph, Joseph Ad even declared that fast. He says, you know, skip a meal for God and seek him. Instead of, instead of feeding your face, seek God. But the southern kingdom decided eventually, no, even, even this is not for us. And looking at that, that is, a, that is a drama in and of itself, too. Trying to, trying to go through all that and trace the, the stuff here. I'm going to read you some of the stuff that I wrote down in my notes, just going through their, their downfall. 2 Kings 18 is where I, where I got it from, and 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32 and 33 has, have all of this, this information here. But King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 is going to pay tribute to Assyria. He's going to give him some money. He's going to you know, kind of leave us alone thing. Assyria calls them out, and they say, you can't trust in Egypt, and you can't trust in your God. They're not going to save you from Assyria. Look how big we are. Look how great we are. Look at what we've done, who we've attacked, and who we've taken over. You cannot be saved by your God or Egypt. And King Hezekiah talks to Isaiah. And then King Hezekiah prays to God, and that prayer is a very beautiful prayer. In verses 14 through 19 of 2 Kings 18, if you've got some time this week, go back and look at his prayer. God, he prays to God, and God says to him, Okay, I've got you. I will take care of you. I will deliver you from the hands of the Assyrians. And a, and a very miraculous thing happens. God delivers them from the Assyrians. He takes care of their problem. And that, that should be a big, is that not a big sign to, to, to you? I mean, if that happened in your life, if you, you're, you're facing this giant enemy that you cannot take care of and is going to come in and wipe you out. And you pray to God and God says, I got you. And then that happens. Man. But just after that, King Hezekiah gets sick and he's sort of bamboozled and, and a little foolish showing the Babylonians his riches and talking to them and all this stuff. And eventually, the Babylonians come in because they're kind of caught in the middle when you think about it. In the world powers, you've got Assyria, and then you've got Babylon that is rising to power. And Babylon is going to take Assyria's place here pretty soon. So you're caught between a rock and a hard place, if you will. And if, if you don't remember God, one of these hard places are going to crush you because it's easy for man to crush man. God could take care of it, but they don't. They're caught in the middle there. He prays to God before he delivers them, but you get down to Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33, 1 through 2, 2 Chronicles 36, Babylonian captivity. Eventually, they go into Babylonian captivity too. That's a very dumbed-down version of all those things that happen there. But eventually, the southern kingdom, even with these kings, some, of, some are great. Some are bringing you back to God. Some are not so great, taking you away from God. But they escaped pretty much Assyrian captivity. The northern kingdom got dragged away. They did not. But now, they are being eaten up by Babylon. And Babylon, go ahead, is taking them over. And what's interesting here, when you think about that, 
God saves them from Assyria. He finishes them off with Babylon because, you know, they, they have not been faithful and, and God allows Babylon to come in and take them over. You've got the northern kingdom that was taken over by the Assyrians. You've got the southern kingdom that escaped that. But now both kingdoms are in captivity under the Babylonian reign. And so in, in a way, you've got this kingdom that split earlier being brought back together, but under captivity. Now God has got both north and south together in the same captivity and is working on them both at the same time through this. And here's where we pick up with this, a very, hopefully, let's see if I can, oh my, that's bad. (laughs) He's got one leg that's thicker than the other. Here is where we pick up with this story. This statue, yes. We've got Daniel, and we've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here that we're going to talk about. But in this point, we're going to be talking about Ezekiel and Daniel in captivity. In Ezekiel and Daniel, Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones, doesn't he? Remember we talked about that well, a long, long time ago. The dry bones, and God says, you know, can these come alive? Well, not by man's power, no, but God can bring them back alive. God can breathe new life into his people, yes. And Daniel, rising to prominence in the kingdom of Babylon, being taken away as a youth, and rising to prominence here, has this dream about these kingdoms. And you guys remember the dream, right? The head represents what? Nebuchadnezzar and and what kingdom, per se? Babylon. Babylon is defeated by torso here and the arms and all that. Medes and Persians. Babylon. Medes. Persians. Okay. Medo-Persian. Medes and Persians, yes. Okay, the Medes and the Persians are going to be replaced by who? The Greeks. And then the Greeks are going to come along, or not come along, but going to be going along, and they're going to be replaced by Rome. And then to top it all off, Rome is now going to be ruling, and who is going to come along and take the place of Rome? This stone is going to come out, it's going to crush those things, it's going to knock that, it's all done. This has defeated all of this, this is defeating all of this, and it's going to grow into this huge mountain. A mountain that we are still a part of today. Never be destroyed. So in this Babylonian captivity, Daniel has this vision of these things happening. Now, this happening to this seems crazy. And this happening to this seems crazy. And that happening to that seems crazy. And at the time it was said, of course it sounds crazy. But what is God showing them? He's saying, look, I, I, I have got you. Trust me. Trust me. I will take care of you. And let me give you some, some proof. Let me give you some things to put some, some bets on here to, to, to show you that I am who I say I am. Go ahead and erase that tie. 
I am who I say I am. So in Daniel chapter 2, you get this, this vision of this statue. You get this, this God who is saying, you're in captivity, I'm going to limit the captivity, and I'm going to take care of you, and ultimately, all these nations that are going to crush other nations, I'm going to crush them. And the spiritual kingdom, God's kingdom, is going to rule over everything. So then you get to what you said before. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you could draw anything you want here because you got these stories. But I, I think of this one here with Daniel. You know, this. what does he do to, to the lions? He's, he's a faithful, God, faithful man of God. Right? Faithful man of God. And the people around him don't like him. Don't want him. They have this edict that you have to worship nothing but the king and his gods. And what does Daniel do? What gets him in trouble? What sends him to the lion's den? Obeying God. Obeying God. Praying. He gets caught praying. Because they knew his schedule, I think. Because they knew they would get, he would get caught. They knew that he did this on a regular basis. They set this thing up and then boom, he's thrown into the lion's den. And what happens in the lion's den? He gets torn to pieces, right? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. It was, it was not a show after all. It was like Geraldo opening the vault. There was nothing there. Nothing there. The lion's mouths were shut. And what does the king say? Daniel's God is God. Man, that's amazing. Then you also have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And again, they're going to be, have a choice, right? You either bow down to this or you get thrown into this fiery furnace. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. Not only do the guys throwing them into the fiery furnace die, but it's so hot you can feel the heat. And the guys themselves, as they're standing in there, what, is the, what does the king say? say uh, yeah, how, how many did we throw in there again? Three. We threw in three, but I see four. So not only does God save them, but he shows up in saving them. He shows up in the fire with them. I mean, there is some tangible proof here. Here, here is in Babylonian captivity in Daniel 2. Daniel has this dream about these things happening. But then you get the tangible proof that God says, okay, trust me. I'm not giving up on you. Don't give up on me and put me first. And here's some tangible proof for you to see. Daniel serves me. He gets thrown in the lion's den and the lions don't kill him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they serve me. They get thrown into a fiery furnace. Their clothes don't even smell. Their hair is not singed. Nothing. Tangible proof that I am God. In captivity, tangible proof for you to see. Go ahead, Ty. For you to see, and that you can trust me, what I say will happen, will happen. In 70 years, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. Which brings us, again, fast-forwarding into history, to this one called the writing on the wall. I'm sure you guys can probably already get ahead of me on this one, right? You ever wonder where that phrase came from? The writing is on the wall. Uh, I wonder if it's from the Bible. One of the places I looked up said it was. 
What happens? Babylonians again. Babylonian captivity. God appears. He writes on the wall. Daniel chapter 5, 26 through 28, 30 through 31. And the, and the writing on the wall, what is it saying? Do you guys remember the interpretation of the writing on the wall? Meany, meany, tickle, parson. I always say that wrong, but uh, what, is it, what is he saying? What is, how does Daniel, because they can't interpret it, right? They don't understand it. So they grab Daniel, and Daniel says, this is what it means. What does it mean? Somebody tell me. Yes. Yes, you've been weighed and found wanting. You, yeah. However your Bible translates it. You, there, you, you've been weighed in, in the balance here and you, you've been found wanting. God has been waiting for them to come. God, I think God has been actually showing them tangible proof too. He's been showing the Babylonians tangible proof that God is God. What did they say when, when he was rescued from the lion's den? What did they say when, when they were rescued from the fiery furnace? God has been all along not only showing his people tangible proof that I am your God, trust me, but he's been showing the Babylonians tangible proof and reaching out to even the enemy and saying, you got a choice here. You can serve the gods that you say you serve or you can serve a God who protects his servants. You can serve a God who's proved himself physically over and over again. And God, I think, is waiting for not only his people to see him, but the Babylonians to see him. And now he's telling them, you've been weighed and you've been found wanting. And now you're going to be taken over. And that night, what happens? The Medes, Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians, they come. And how do they get in? That's one of the interesting things about this because that city is pretty much impregnable. That's a hard word to say. I always mess it up. I, and I looked all over for the exact statistics of the, of the city, but it's, you know, some people have different statistics. But I want to read you the one that I found that was the most, at least seemed the most convincing. But it's 56 miles in length, 300-foot high walls, 25 feet thick, with another wall 75 feet behind that first wall, and that wall extending 35 feet below the ground. 250 towers at 450 450 feet high each, and a moat. And all of that means absolutely nothing if God is saying, your, your reign is over. You don't think you can be taken over? In fact, the Medes and the Persians, they divert the water that's flowing through the city just enough so that they don't notice the diversion of the water and they can send people through there and they actually end up inside the city don't even have to try to breach the walls. Don't have to do anything. They're in the city already and taken over. That first half of that statue, Babylonian, Medo-Persia, happening that night. And the tangible proof, go ahead, Ty. The tangible proof that God is God and God is who He says He is has been demonstrated once again. The fact that you can trust me, the fact that you should keep me first has been demonstrated one more time. Which leads us to the next thing about time. Thank you, Ty. For this one, I just drew a clock. Because it, it reminds me of, of this. It's a very simple way to remind you of this. There's some returning happening because Persia does not have the same beef with the people of God that Assyria and Babylon had. And so they allow them, some of them, to return. But here we're picking up with Esther's story. 
Esther's story. Exactly. When you look at that clock and you think Esther, I think of, well, what, maybe for such a time as this. This is why God put you here. This is why God did this. This is that, that clock. This is the time, Esther, Mordecai reminds her. And, and to remind us of the book, at the very beginning, the king asks his wife to come. The king doesn't, or the queen doesn't feel like coming. And so the king says, well, I don't feel like having you as a queen. So I'm going to change. So they change. And Esther becomes the queen. She wins the contest. They have all this, this beautifying and all this stuff. And, and she wins the contest to become the queen. But the king doesn't know that she's Jewish. Haman gets into some scuffle with Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down to him because Haman is obviously an important person and he needs everybody to bow down to him. Mordecai does not bow down to him at the gates and so Haman has already got a grudge against this guy. And so much so that he asks his wife, his wife recommends that he build, my Bible calls it a gallows, maybe a spike. He's got something ready to kill Mordecai with. And he goes so far as to get a decree to kill them all with. What's interesting here is, is the, the juxtaposition of that, because Haman does plan on killing Mordecai, right? But how does that end up? Instead of Haman using that on Mordecai, that gets used on Haman. As the king says, hey, what, what are you going to do? And he kind of tells the king his plan and says, let's do it to you. The other interesting juxtaposition there, too, is the king called Vashti, his wife, and said, come here. And she said, no. She didn't come when he called her. Esther, oh man, oh Darren, oh, you need a marriage seminar just just to get rid of that. Did you? Did did? I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say it out loud because yeah, you said that. He said just like a woman when I said she didn't come when he called her. Just like a woman. Oh, you know if I'd say that, everybody would boo. They laugh when you say that. Anyway, she didn't come when he called her, right? Esther comes when he doesn't call her. Look at that, that juxtaposition there. He gets rid of one because she doesn't come. Esther comes when she could have a chance of losing her life because she comes before the king unsummoned. Boy, God's hand is in that. And Mordecai in chapter 4 there, uh, let's see, I wrote it down exactly where it was. Chapter 4. Why now I can't see it. I can't remember the, the verse exactly. Oh, 4 verse 14. There it is. 4 verse 14. It's that, it's that famous line. You know, maybe this is the time God called you for. Maybe this is it. Which is a good message for us today too. For such a time as this. You know, maybe God's been preparing you for this all your life. You didn't know it. You didn't know that God was orchestrating events all along here for this event. But this is... This is possibly why God did this. Mordecai gives Esther that advice, and Esther takes it, and she runs with it, luckily. Now, Mordecai, I think, says, too, as well, that you know, if you don't, God will raise up somebody to do that. God will take care of his plan, right? God will do and accomplish his purpose. And he's done that over through history. And once again, the message of trust me and keep me first comes into play here with this part. Go ahead, Ty. With this part. So now we're, we're continuing in this Persian captivity and, and part of the return. And here we're going to meet another person that we have looked at. This was a Sunday night lesson uh, quite a while ago. But this lesson here, you're going to meet another man, another famous 
famous dude. He's going to do something and, and do it with God's help and with the people's help. Anybody got an idea yet? I thought I heard it. Nehemiah rebuild the wall. Yes. Nehemiah. 52 because he does it in, they do it in 52 days. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Nehemiah, I thought of a great phrase that he could have used back then. Nehemiah making the wall great again. What? No? (laughs) Making the wall, we're going to make the wall great again. (laughs) That's right. There's no patent on that. Making the wall great again. But he hears this report from his brother and from others, and, he, and he's, he's brokenhearted about it. He's the cupbearer to the king, and the king notices that his, that his face is downcast, so he asks him what's wrong, and he tells him, and he says, I need to go. And they, not only does he go, but God sends him with the king's blessings and with the king's help and all of this to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Man, how awesome is that? And there again is God taking care of his people. And here is the big part of, of the restoration, the wall, rebuilding the wall. Haggai told the people that the rebuilding of the temple, this is another tangible evidence here that God is with you. God is, is with you. He's going to be for you. But you have to be with Him. Amen. Nehemiah said similar things. I'm, I'm going to be sending a Messiah. I need you to make things ready. I'm going to be getting things moving here. But you have to be a person that depends on me. You have to trust me. You have to keep me first. Go ahead, Ty. You have to keep me first. And here we end up in the last part of it. And again, we're sucking up a lot of things in this section. And this, thank you, is a simple thing like this. And that is a... Checklist, yes. A checklist. At the end of, of this one, put a checklist. Because it's... When we get to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, which is interesting. I mean, the, the, the New Testament starts off in the Old Testament, really. Because the you know up until Jesus' crucifixion, we're still Old Testament. But Malachi is where we divide the New Testament, Old Testament thing. We've got Malachi, we've got Micah, we've got all of these things that, that make these predictions. And I wrote down a couple in, in my notes here. But uh, from Micah, Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a servant. He's going to be an everlasting ruler. We've got, uh, see, Deuteronomy, was that 21? Yes, 21, 22, and 23. 21, 22, 23. And then, oops. What happened to what? Well, uh, just a second, I'll tell you. I'll, yeah, I'll tell you. But wait, there's more. Okay. So Micah 5.2, he's going to be uh, born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a servant. He's going to have a rule everlasting. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 talks about dying on a tree. It's that, 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 that phrase of, you know, cursed it is, is any man who dies on a tree. Psalm 34, 20 talks about his bones not being broken. 
Zechariah 11.12, he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Comes out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. I mean, you could, you could, there's so many of those. The reason that number nine is this checklist is because who's coming? The Messiah is coming. God has been protecting this all the way through His, his Word. He's been, he's been ensuring that this line, that, that, that His Messiah is going to come. He's been doing this all throughout His Word. And at the end here, through Malachi and through all of these others, Micah, Deuteronomy, and Psalm, all of these other books, there are, there are glimpses of the Christ. Amen. There's whole, whole bunches of them throughout the Old Testament. This is that punch list in Malachi. Oh, I, don't, I don't have enough room there. Malachi talks about the one coming to prepare the way for him. John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for the Savior. Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, yeah, John the Baptist is that is that the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. He's coming and preparing the way for his servant. Over and over again, we see glimpses of the Savior in the Old Testament. Because God is ultimately saying, again, trust me. And then you have... How many years of silence? Four hundred years of silence. That's interesting. Four hundred years of silence. And then things start happening again, which is where we will pick up next week. But you look at this lesson here. Go ahead and erase that time. Thanks. You go from a kingdom split to, to uh, Jonah and the preaching to the enemy. And you go to the up and down south, the, the southern kingdom that is, is good king, bad king, and all these things, and drawing people to God, then, then drawing them to idols. Then you go to the dreams that, that Daniel had in captivity. You go to the lions, you go to the fiery furnace, then you go to the writing on the wall with the Babylonians, then you go to Esther, and what time is it? And then 52 days, and then the punch list, the checklist of these things are going to be done, and you're going to see them fulfilled in Christ. God over and over again in His Old Testament is saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. Trust me. So my, my question to you this morning is the same question that I asked you the first week. Do you trust Him? Are you keeping Him first? But do you trust Him? I think that is the same message throughout God's Word, but especially the Old Testament as, he, as His people learn about Him and as He is maturing and growing his people over and over again he gives them reason to trust him and he keeps asking the same question will you trust me will you trust me that you don't need a king no i won't will you trust me that this food is good for you and this tree is not no i won't there are a couple that that do but over and over again the resounding answer seems to be no i'm not going to trust you why do we do that as human beings why do we not trust god is he not faithful? Is he not sure? Is he not a king of kings, the Lord of lords? Is he not who he says he is? Then why don't we trust him? Why do we have such a problem with that? And like Darren pointed out this morning, the, the problems in the Old Testament, like Abram getting on his horse and going and freeing his, his nephew Lot, that's a, big, that's a big problem. I've never had to free my nephew from any foreign band of raiders. I hope I never have to. But like you said, you know, compared to the problems we have today, man, that's nothing. So why do I have such a hard time trusting God? Why do I have a hard time trusting Him and believing what He says and, 
Having that faith in Him. That's over and over again what He's asking for is have faith in Me. Not yourself. Not the power that the world says is power. But have faith in Me. Trust Me. That I'm going to do what's good for you and that I'm going to bring you through. So today, do you trust Him? Are you trusting Him? You have a problem with trust. That's something we need to work on as a people, as a nation, as the body of Christ. Trusting Him every day. Well, this is the end of the Old Testament. Next week we're going to get into the New Testament and take a look through there and see again the same message of trust me, trust me, trust me. Do you trust Him today? Ask yourself that question as we stand and as we sing.